0: Take your Bibles and turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this time. 1 Corinthians 15, we're looking at verses 20 to 34 this morning. You know, of all the religions in the world, they all have one thing in common except Christianity, and that is that they are founded by a dead person. No, no matter how good they were at one time, they're dead now. You know, they're, they might have died a martyr's death, they might have died a natural death, whatever, they're dead. But uh, Christ is a risen Savior, and that makes all the difference. You see, uh, Christianity is not a moral code, it's not a set of platitudes, it's not, a, it's not a, a religion, it's not a gathering of people, it's not a social club, it's a relationship ultimately with Jesus Christ. And that's made possible only because he is alive. And that way he's alive because of the resurrection. Now, if he had not resurrected from the dead, then the philosopher, the atheistic philosopher Nietzsche, would be absolutely right when he said that God is dead and what we believe has no validity so believe whatever you want to believe and let's get on with life and forget about God and he would be right if Jesus Christ was still in a tomb somewhere but if God raised him from the dead that changes everything and that's what Paul wants to talk about today that everything is changed because of Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead There's whole chapters about that. In the first 11 verses, Paul has told us that that Christ is resurrected and he gave proof. In verses uh, 12 to 19, he said, uh, uh, he, he talked about the importance of the resurrection largely for our salvation. And now in the text before us today, we're going to look at the importance of the resurrection in the way we live life now and how we view eternity. So we're going to look at this by by looking, starting at verse 20 in just a moment and and I want you to notice we go through that everything has changed, everything has changed because Jesus Christ is resurrected. And we start off first of all that our destiny has changed because of the resurrection of Christ. There's two things to consider here and the first of all is that of Christ's past accomplishments. Our, Our destiny is set because of what Christ has already done as we commemorated today at the Lord's table. Verse 20 is where we start today, and this is a refreshing verse to me. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Now I want you to focus on that for just a few moments because in verses 12 to 19, he's been giving a totally different scenario. He's been basically saying, what if Christ did not raise from the dead? What would be true if Christ had not raised from the dead? And he gave us five things that would be true had Christ not raised. First of all, he says, what if? Christ is not raised from the dead, then our faith is worthless, verses 12 to 14. What if Christ is not raised from the dead, then uh, we have no authoritative word of God, no revelation from God, because all the apostles are liars. If Christ is not raised from the dead, then our, we are still in our sins. We have not been forgiven, verses 16 and 17. What if Christ is not raised from the dead, then those who have died already have no hope. They have simply perished, Verse 18. And if Christ is not resurrected from the dead, then we are a pitiful people. Of all people on earth, we are to be pitied because we live our whole lives for some lie. However, as Paul comes to verse 20, he says, but now. He says, now let's get over the what ifs. Let's get over what, what would happen if Christ not resurrected. Let's go to reality. The reality is that he has risen from the dead and that has changed everything, but now. The what if is replaced by what is, and that's important to, to note here. The fog is gone, it's vanished, and now we can focus on what is reality. I don't know if you've ever had one of these disturbing dreams. I've had them before. You, you dream and it's so real that you, you almost think it's true, and, and then and it's usually a bad dream, right? you ever have, ever have a good dream? There are not many, but I had a, you have a bad dream and you wake up and say, oh, I hope that was a dream, and it is. And you now start to unfog and you begin to realize, yeah, that, that didn't really happen. Here's the truth. Here's the reality. But that's what, what Paul is doing here. Let's get over all this fog, this what ifs, this, this uh, dream that isn't true. And let's move on to what is true. Enough of that nonsense. What has Christ accomplished? And so he says, but, what, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. And now he moves on to say the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, when he says that, he doesn't mean simply that Christ is the first person to resurrect from the dead, never to to die again. That's true. But he's harking back to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God required first fruits of the people of Israel as an offering. Those first fruits were the first part of the the harvest that came in, that they were, were to give to God as an offering, as a sacrifice, before the rest of the harvest came in. And that was because uh, it would be a, an act of faith on their part because uh, they had no safety net back in those days. If, you, if the rest of the harvest didn't come in, you'd starve to death. And therefore, there was a, it was an act of faith on the promise of God that if they gave uh, these first fruits to him, uh, then uh, God would give the rest to them. And they had to, to, to trust in him by faith on his promise and his guarantee. Uh, years ago, Marsha and I had a, a raspberry patch on the side of our house. And I really liked that raspberry patch. It wasn't big, r- real big. But uh, when the fruits started coming in, uh, there was just enough each evening for me to go out and get a bowl of raspberries. Just enough to put on my ice cream. Because right? I knew ice cream was bad for you, but raspberries are good for you. So I figured it canceled out. All right? you know, You put hot chocolate on your ice cream, that doesn't cancel out anything. You know, that's doubly bad. But raspberries on ice cream, hmm. So, but my raspberries came in a little bit at a time. Throughout this, the, the spring and summer, they, we probably got a few gallons of, of the raspberries. But they came in a bowl at a time, the first fruits. Now, that's the idea he has here. As these, these, this harvest came in, the first fruits came in, and they gave them as a, to God. Now, why? Because it was an act of faith and a guarantee of God. Now, let's transfer that over to what he is saying about Jesus. He's the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. By faith, we believe that Christ is resurrected from the dead. and And also, maybe this is the most important part, his resurrection is our guarantee of eternal life. The guarantee of our own personal resurrection from the dead when he comes back. And that's what he's saying about Christ. Now how that works out is verse 21 and 22. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now here's how it works out. Death came on the whole human race because of Adam. When Adam sinned, uh, sinned, the, uh, the whole human race was corrupted. Sin came upon us. We died spiritually. We, we plant. We will die physically. All that happened because of Adam. And the only thing that can replace that is another man who lived a perfect, sinless life who would come and, and live for us and die for us, and that could only be Jesus Christ. So in Christ. But, there, but as, as he says this here, he is not saying that, um, that everybody is going to be saved. This is now universalism. Notice those in Christ will be saved, will, fa- will have resurrected life. Those in Adam will face eternal death. And so we have these two things. There, let me give you a, a crude illustration. It might not help, but maybe it will. But back in the Civil War, uh, if a person was, uh, in, was called up to go into battle, they could have a substitute replace them. And so there is uh, accounts of that. And one particular account is a guy named Wyatt, Mr. Wyatt. He had a large family, and he was called up by the South to go into battle, to go into war. And, uh, but because he had this large family, a friend of his, a younger man named, named Platt, said, I will go in your place. I will replace you. And when he did that, on the records, on the official records, they changed his name from Platt to Wyatt. So he went into battle under the name of the guy that he had replaced. Unfortunately, he died in battle. And then a few years later, as the South needed more enlistments and couldn't find any, they, they called up Wyatt again. They said, you need to come and join the army. He said, uh, I can't do that, I'm dead. And they said, well, what do you mean you're dead? You're standing right there in front of us. He said, look up the records. And they went through the records, and lo and behold, right there was Wyatt died in the battle. And he said, see, I'm dead. I can't go. This, this other person died in my place. Now, that's an imperfect illustration, but it gets the point across. Christ died in our place. He, he took what we deserved and died in our place. We therefore are dead to judgment because Christ took that judgment upon him. And so there's only two kinds of people folks in this room or throughout the world. There's two kinds of people, just two. But personally, whenever somebody says to me, there's only two kinds of people, i roll my eyes. Like, Come on, this is a little too simplistic. There's gotta be more than two kinds of people in this world and so people, but people say that uh, Mark Twain, for example, said, uh, there are two kinds of people, those who claim to have accomplished something and those who have. And then uh, someone else says, there, from a very arrogant person, said there's two kinds of people, those who agree with me and those who will later agree with me. You know, some of you are like that, I'm sure. Then uh, someone said there, there's two kinds of people, there's givers and takers. And that's a little simplistic, but I really like Clint Eastwood in one of his uh, shoot 'em up cowboy shows as he was facing some guy he was making do something, the guy was complaining and Clint Eastwood said, there are two kinds of people, those who have guns and those who dig. You dig, okay? Well, I don't know about any of those, but I do know about this one. There are two kinds of people. Those are in Christ and those who are in Adam. If you're in Adam, you're still in your sins and your, your destiny is eternal, eternal death. If you're in Christ, uh, your sins have been replaced by the, by the blood of Jesus Christ, You've, they've, those sins have been paid for and you are in him forever. And so if you're in Adam, what have you got to look forward to? Well, death, as he wants to talk about further. I like the way Charles Spurgeon said it, he's very colorful and crude sometimes. But he said this, if you had got all the world, you would have got nothing after your coffin lid was screwed down but, but grave dust in your mouth. That's a wonderful thought before lunch, right? So that's the past accomplishments of Christ. That's what He's done for us that we might have eternal destiny with Him. Now here's the future accomplishments on our behalf starting with verse 23. And so we know here now that the Lord has a wonderful plan for the future for His people and what are they? Well first of all verse 23 he says this, but each in his own order Christ the first fruits, after those uh, who are in uh, are Christ at his coming. So the first thing God has planned for us is our personal resurrection. The believer will be resurrected to newness of life and given a new and glorified resurrected body. Paul's going to be talking about that the rest of the chapter. Uh, so the next two sermons are going to be talking about that resurrected body, that resurrected life, what God has planned. So he just kind of puts it in here and he drops it. So we're going to drop it right now and we'll come back to that next week. But here's the second thing that God has planned. He has the end planned. Look at verse 24 he says, then comes the end. So savor that for just a moment. The end is coming. Now when he says that he skips over a huge amount of things that are going to happen in the future. He goes right from the time of the rapture and he skips over the tribulation period. He skips over the battle of Armageddon. He skips over the second coming. He skips over the judgment seat of Christ in the millennial kingdom. He skips over the great white throne judgment and he moves right to the end of life as we know it and the beginning of eternal life. Skips over 100, 1,007 years to come to this verse and he says the end. What happens at the end? What does God have planned at the end? We'll move on to verse 24 a little further. When he hands over the kingdom to, to the God and Father... He's going to be handing over this kingdom. Now get the picture. Scripture teaches us that the Lord is going to come to this earth. He's going to live on this earth. He's going to reign on this earth for a thousand years. He's going to reign from from Jerusalem over the whole earth. And all the earth will be subjected to him. At the end of that time, at the end of that millennial kingdom, the kingdom is rolled over into the eternal kingdom. That will be the kingdom in which we'll live in forever. And so he hands over the kingdom. There's more though, look at verse 24. And when he abolished all rule and all authority and power, and he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, everything that has ever rebelled against God, including man, including Satan, including everything, will now be put under his feet. They will be made subjected to him. Our sovereign God will allow limited power to his enemies now. And he does under his sovereign rule but in the future that will not happen that will be gone and folks this is great news for us today Uh, as I read literature as I talk to people and so forth I I believe a lot of people even a lot of Christians live in fear we we live in in anxiety we live in a fearful state because we don't know what's going to happen to our world and we're afraid of it we're afraid of the changes that are taking place we know nuclear weapons could be unleashed at any time destroying masses of people The doomsday clock by the scientists is moved forward a little bit just about every year. Financial circumstances are crazy. Uh, Many times as we're talking about what our government spends, we just shake our heads and say, Well, I don't understand how we can possibly go on. Somehow we do, but that makes us anxious. Many Christians are participating in what I call the great hibernation. We're running from the world. We we move away to some place that we think is some kind of idyllic utopia. It's not. Are we moving to our own cloister of our family? Are we, are we moving to our own cloister of ourselves? and we try to escape the, the world? The great hibernation is taking place in many parts of the world right now. Our fear and our anxiety is what? It's caused by what? Uncertainty. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen to America. We don't know what's going to happen in our family. We don't know what's going to happen to our finances. We don't know what's going to happen with our health. We don't know. And so we become anxious and we become fearful. Let me suggest to you that is not the posture of a Christian. Yes, there are many things we're not certain of. But there is one thing we're certain of. That the Lord Jesus Christ reigns. He rules now. Nothing happens. He doesn't want to happen. And ultimately he's going to come. And he's going to set up his kingdom that will be in forever. In verse 27 and 28, he tells us why Christ is doing all this. Very complicated verses. I'm going to read them and summarize them. But look at verse 27. He says this, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. So that God may be all in all. Now that's a complicated couple of verses. So I'm just going to give you a, an overview of what this means. Basically this means this. When the end comes and, and all the enemies of God have been abolished and put down. And then at that point the Lord turns over the kingdom to the Father. And at that point forever for and ever the whole world will see his supremacy. The triune God will rule unopposed Forever at that point in time. And we will worship the triune God forever. That's God's plan. That's what's coming, folks. I don't know what's coming tomorrow. I'm pretty sure it's not a blue moon that's gonna cause some kind of prophetic problem. I'm pretty sure it's not what you think it's gonna be or not what it's gonna be. I'm pretty sure we don't know the future, but I'm pretty sure I know the distant future. And Jesus Christ is coming and setting up a kingdom. And He will reign with His Father forever and ever. In supremacy, and there will be no one who challenges that, as Scripture says, "Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord." But there is one more, de- one more enemy that has to be abolished before it's all said and done. The very last enemy, in verse 26, the last enemy to be abolished is death. The last great enemy is death. Death will die at that point. Death was introduced by Adam; it was conquered at the resurrection. And it will be destroyed when Christ sets up his eternal kingdom. The last wound in the universe will then be healed. And death will be no more. That's a wonderful and glorious truth. The last enemy is destroyed. My favorite Gaither song probably is a song called It Is Finished. Some of you probably are familiar with that. But I want to read the chorus to you. It fits so well right here. It says, It is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There is no more war. It is finished. The end of the conflict. It is finished. And Jesus is Lord. Folks, that's what we have to look forward to. We have no fear because Christ is Lord. And when it's finished, everyone and everything that has ever existed will bow before him and say, Jesus is Lord. I want to be there. How about you? It's going to be a glorious time. Christ's resurrection then changed our destiny. Let's move on quickly. It also changes our purpose in life. And there's two thoughts I want to gather for you here. First of all, what do the unsaved people live for? What do they live for? And Paul captures that in a model in verse 32 when he says this to them. He says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's summing up the, the... the values, the purpose of life for the unbeliever. And he's not making this up. This is actually something that was part of their, their culture. There was a statue just in another nearby town to Corinth that actually had this this statue here. It had a man snapping his fingers with the inscription on the pedestal Eat, drink, enjoy thyself, the rest is nothing. And then there was an Epicurean uh, fable at that time about a fly and this fly was dying in a honey pot he gone down the honey pot he was dying and he and he says these words in the fable I've eaten and drunk and bathed and I care nothing if I die now that's what he's quoting right here those particular things and what he's saying is this this is whether they believe it or not this is the the lifestyle of the unbeliever what does the unbeliever have to look forward to folks nothing and a lot worse than that and they may not know it is they have eternal condemnation upon them so what do the unbeliever do the unbeliever does they, they, they do the best they can right they live life the best they can they eat they drink they party they enjoy they get through the best they can some get through pretty easily some not but that's all they have to look forward to so he dis- is describing then the life of the unbeliever and the unbeliever uh, can have nothing beyond this life to look forward to, so let's just live it up now. That was the the view of many of the Stoics and the Epicureans of this time. But there's another thing to think about here, and that's the life of the believer. What do we have to live forward, uh, look forward to, and live for? It? So he goes on here in uh, in the next couple of verses, and, and he starts talking about it in verse 29. So verse 29 is a, it's, it's a challenge here. Let me read this to you. Otherwise, what were those who are baptized for the dead, if the dead are not raised up at all? Why are they baptized for them? Now you say, Gary, I've been looking forward to you explaining that verse for a long time, so I'm going to give you the answer that I have. I don't know. Okay? I really not real sure what the matter of fact. One commentator said there's 500 different interpretations for this verse because it's kind of a, this comes out of the blue. There's no other scriptures to to like it. Nothing that verifies it. We're kind of in a pickle here what this means. The worst interpretation ever is by the Mormons. And the Mormons have decided based on this verse alone that we are to baptize living Mormons for dead ancestors. And if we baptize ourselves for our dead ancestors then they will be saved. And that's why, in case you didn't know it, they're, they're hugely into the genealogies. It's not because they want to have a nice family tree picture. They, they believe they're bab- being baptized for, for uh, ancestors who have already died, who, didn't, who weren't saved, but they're going to get saved for them. So why is that so bad? Because that, that's a teaching that's, that I can save somebody else through my actions. That is completely nonsense. First of all, you can't save yourself. And secondly, I certainly can't save you. And so it's a horrible, horrible interpretation. I think probably uh, Warren Wiersbe has noted it down as much as anybody. Uh, he says this, look, if there's no resurrection, why bother telling anybody about Jesus? Well, why bother uh, bringing people to Christ? Why bother baptizing them uh, as they replace others who have died, who were baptized and died? Why bother with all that? Because if Christianity is a dead-end streak, get off of it. And I agree with that 100%. If it goes nowhere beyond the grave, get off and eat and drink and live it up the best you can. That's what the unbeliever is doing. But we have much more than that. So that's what he says there. But verses 30 and 31 he goes on and talks about this purpose. We have a greater purpose in life than eating and drinking and having a good time. He says in verse 30, why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brethren, by by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, I die daily. Now here's what Paul's saying. Look, I am willing to sacrifice anything I need to sacrifice for the cause of Christ because I know of my future destiny with Him. I know. I know He has died and resurrected for me. I know He's coming again for me. I know He's going to give me an eternal life with Him and I'm willing to pay whatever price I need to pay now to live for Him and serve Him. That's a beautiful way to live life, folks. So you can live in Christ or you can live in Adam you can live with what this world has to offer and, and ultimately it will be destroyed or you can live for Jesus Christ and live with him forever. And if that's the case, that changes your purpose in living. Our destiny then has changed and our purpose has changed. Verses 33 and 34 tells us that our everyday life has changed as well. There's a little ditty of a song that uh, we have sung throughout the ages that most of you probably know or a lot of you do. It goes this way, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, I can't feel at home in this world anymore. A little simplistic and maybe not exactly on line with scripture, because we have a lot to do in this life. We're not called to escape, we're not called not to be involved. Certainly we are to be in many, many ways as citizens on this planet. But there is a, a real truth here, this world is not our home Uh, we're looking for a home that's beyond this home and one day we're going to be in that home I can't feel at home in this world anymore means I'm longing for a place I have never been that's my home and I want to be there and if that is your view that's how you're living he says look uh, we we are to live in light of eternity and if we do if we want to live this way then there's two things he wants us to contemplate number one don't allow the worldview around us to shape you into its mold. Verse verse thirty three goes this way: Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Now, this verse probably is most often used by parents talking to their teenagers, and they say, Look, 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 Junior! Uh, if you run around with those kids, those bad kids, you're going to become like them. You need to get some good friends, and uh, and you need to to uh, To be shaped by those good people and so forth. And we use that all the time with our kids. And that's good. It works. It's it's helpful. But it's much broader than that. This is talking about all of us. And he's saying, look. If you allow yourself, your mind, your values, your heart. To be shaped by the world around you. Then you're going to live just like the world around you. And you will be corrupted. And that's uh, not that... easy to do right or it is very easy to do let's put it that way all you have to do is spend most of your, your waking hours when you're not working and doing things you have to do listening to media going on whatever media pra- platform you want to go on listening to the doomsayers over here and doomsayers over there uh, or, or listening to the world views that you get in literature and whatever if you allow that to happen if that is what you feed on don't be surprised if that's what you become bad company corrupts good morals and the answer is not run away from everybody who, who isn't a Christian or living for Christ. The answer is, to, is Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Set your mind on things above. Your, let your mind dwell on, get into the word, get into the things of Christ. Let those things shape who you are and you not become, become conformed to this world system. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Here's the second thing, though, on a, on a more positive front, I, I guess. On the one hand, don't let yourself be pressed down with the world system ideas. But secondly, he says, we must be intentional about our walk with Christ. Let's be intentional. And he finishes up this section in verse 34 by saying this, become sober minded as you ought and stop sinning for some have no knowledge of God and I speak this to your shame. So not only do not be pressed into this mode of unbiblical living and thinking But on the other hand, make it your your goal to be sober-minded as you are. Sober-minded means serious. It it, it means to to, to take the Christian life, to take Jesus Christ seriously. Be sober-minded in these things. And he's apparently talking to a, a group of Christians that would fit many Christians today. You know, you can go to somebody and say, well, how are you doing in your spiritual walk? If you want to get somebody to, to stop talking out in the foyers, just ask that question. Say, how are you, how are you doing with the Lord? Tell me what's happening lately with you and the Lord. Well, I hope people have some good answers for you. But uh, often they'll just kind of look at you and say, uh, what's, where's the coffee? You know, or something like that. Well, here, here's his point. If someone were to say that to you as you contemplate that, uh, what would you say? And far too many Christians will say, well, I'm doing all right. You know, I, I, I may not be a good Christian. But I'm not really a bad sinner either. I'm I'm doing all right. I I, I don't need all that much of that church stuff. You know, all that much of that Bible reading and that kind of thing. Uh, And I don't need all that fellowship stuff. But I I, I still, I'm a a Christian. I just don't want too much of it. Well, Paul wouldn't be extremely happy about that, I don't think. As he says, be sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. The implication is those who think, well I I can just get by, I can just slide by on the Christian life, I'm not going to press on, I'm not going to grow, I'm not going to be what God wants me to be, I'm content. He says, that's sin. That shouldn't be the, the posture of any Christian at all. He's basically saying, stop playing games with God. In the context, Paul is pointing out that what we believe about the future has a major impact on how we live now. Do you realize that? The strongest Christians are those who realize their destiny, who realize where they're going and where they're going to be. When we live on this earth, in this life, in light of eternal blessings He has for us, it shapes everything about us. I don't know, have you ever gone on a vacation you're just excited about? I mean, you're really looking forward to this thing? And you start planning for that. Recently, Marsha and I took two of the grand boys and we went to Utah, uh, to to the canyons and all that stuff down there. I'd never been there before, knew nothing much about it. So we started planning. We got a couple books, we got some videos, Uh, we uh, planned to go here and there, we got a place to stay, we put a lot of money into this. Everything for that, someplace we'd never been. But we were excited about going to a place we had never been. And then when we got there, it it exceeded our expectations. It was a glorious opportunity, a wonderful, wonderful vacation. We truly enjoyed it. If you're excited about a place, going to a place you've never been, it changes how you live now. If you're excited about going to be with him forever and ever on the basis of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who loves you and saved you by his great power and strength, that will change everything about the way you live now, the way you view the future and the way you have your your very purpose in life. Father, we thank you for your word and for what it teaches us about these things. Lord, we trust that these truths will truly speak to our hearts and minds today as we consider how you'd have us live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.